Surely you can't be serious. I am serious. And don't call me Shirley. Good morning, Vietnam! You are great. I'm not bad. I'm just drawn that way. I have come here to chew bubblegum and kick ass. And I'm all out of bubblegum. Life moves pretty fast. You don't stop and look around once in a while. You could miss it. My calculations are correct. When this baby hits 88 miles per hour, you're gonna see some serious... You're listening to the 30-something movie podcast. Classic movies, 30 years in the making. Yeah, you are listening to the 30-something movie podcast. Uh, This is your host, John Reed. Uh, back from a little bit of a break, we had um, the guys uh, hosts on the show with me. We are pretty much all teachers, so we were out for spring break last week. So uh, hopefully you didn't miss us too much, but we are back. And we are back with an episode. We're, we're going to leap forward a little bit from uh, from our usual 1988 fair this year. And we're going to be jumping into Ready Player One this time. Uh, we talked about, I, I've mentioned this book uh, in years past on our podcast, because it, it, when I first read it, I was like, oh man, this is for somebody who loves 80s stuff. I mean, this is the whole reason that I chose to go with a podcast that was 80s related just because of the movies and uh, just how much I love 80s movies. And we used to talk about them all the time. So that's kind of we got why we got together and decided to do this podcast where we look at movies that are hitting their 30th anniversary. We're almost out of the 80s, by the way, tangent. Um, man, we, we've got a, about a year and a half, year and, and two-thirds left uh, in the 80s, and then we're out of it. Uh, so, I mean, that's kind of weird to think of. But this book, when I first read this book a few years ago, I, I was just, I, I loved it. I fell in love with it. Um, that's not to say it doesn't have its problems, but I fell in love with it just because it was a, it, it, it seemed like a book that was, just pulling bits and pieces out of my mind. Um, I, I think Ernest Klein and I would have a lot in common if we sat down and talked. And, and, and obviously, he's got a much more encyclopedic knowledge, or he had the opportunity to sit down and research some stuff uh, while he was writing this book. And, and he probably was a little bit older than me, so he lived through more of this as an adolescent than I would have uh, being born in 1980. But when I read this book, I just, I was kind of floored by, oh, wow. He, yeah, I, I almost totally forgot about that. He mentioned that. He referenced that. Um, so it was a lot of fun. So when I heard they were going to be doing this as a movie, I thought, that's ridiculous. There's no way they're ever going to get the licensing to be able to do these references, these Easter eggs that he that he throws in here. Um, and then when I heard Steven Spielberg was doing it, I, I think I com- commented on one of our past podcasts and I said, you know what, if anybody could pull together the licensing for this movie and get it done, it's going to be Steven Spielberg. So was very excited for this movie to come out. Uh, got a chance to go see it the other day. The other guys have not had a chance to see it yet, so that's why I'm flying solo this time around. If you listening to this, if the other guys, you know, listening to this, if they've listened to this after they go see the movie, um, we may talk about uh, bits and pieces of it in a future episode. But if you've got something, if you've got any feedback or anything as I'm talking uh, about this movie, anything that I missed or anything you disagree with, please feel free to get in touch. Um, you can go to our website, 30podcasts, it's 30podcast.com. That's got all the different ways you can get in touch with us from email, Twitter, uh, Instagram, Facebook. 
We have a voicemail line. So if you want to call into our voicemail line, you won't be interrupting anybody. It just goes straight through to voicemail. You can leave a message there. We'll play your message and uh, respond to your message on the show. Uh, but we'd love to hear from you if, if you've got anything that you want to uh, kind of throw in here with, with Ready Player One. Uh, we'd love to hear about it. So I am excited to talk about this movie. I'm not going to go into new movie news and any of that stuff this time around. Uh, I'm really just kind of jump right into... Uh, talking about Ready Player One, um, so I think we're just gonna we're just gonna leap right into it, and uh, we'll get going. So this is gonna be our uh, episode number one seventy nine. We are just marching on ahead. Uh, we're not that far away from two hundred. I, I looked ahead, and it's really just a few more weeks until we hit episode number two hundred. So I don't know what we're doing for it. If anybody has a suggestion, uh, feel free to to throw something out there. But um, I'm sure we'll do something special. We we try to do something special for one hundred and one fifty. So I'm sure when we t- hit two hundred, we'll do something special. But, uh, yeah, so really, really quick, um, episode number 179, ready player one, let me give the regular spiel just so you, just so you know, you know, we spoil the events of the movies we talk about. So if you have not seen ready player one yet, and it just came out, um, less than a week ago. So if you have not seen it yet, do not listen to this podcast yet. Save this podcast, come back to this podcast, then listen to it afterwards, but do not listen to this because there are plenty of things in this movie that I did not, I wouldn't want to spoil for you, especially if you're someone who loves 80s and 80s references and and you just want to be surprised by it. And that's what this movie does so well is just, you're there, you're looking at the screen and all of a sudden something you love is going to show up on that screen, you know, in, in some corner or hidden in the background somewhere. And I'm going to list out a whole bunch of different Easter eggs that are in this movie. So if you don't want to be spoiled, please go see the movie first and then come back and listen to this podcast because I do not want to ruin something for you. So that's out there now. If you haven't yet, uh, please leave us a review on iTunes. We'd love to hear from you. We want to hear what we're doing well, what you think uh, you know we could be doing better. Uh, we, we don't have fragile egos, so please feel free to let us know. We, uh, make it constructive. Uh, you know, Don't just say, you guys suck. Cause that doesn't help. Um, but yeah, if there's something that you're loving about the show that you wish we would do more of, or, you know, something you wish we'd do a little bit differently, let us know. We'd, we'd love to hear from you because we do this for fun. Like we don't, it's, it's, it's time and it's money that goes into making this podcast, but we're not doing it to make money. We're just doing this for fun. And we're doing this because we just, we want to share this with anybody who, you know, has some of the same loves that we do of eighties movies, eighties pop culture, that kind of stuff. Uh, so we'd love to hear from you. So if we haven't heard from you before, please leave us a review on iTunes or get in touch with us and let us know. So again, I am flying solo this time around. I'm not going to go through any of the new movie news. Uh, I'm just going to jump directly into Ready Player One. So this time around, Ready Player One is our movie. It was released on March 29th, 2018, just a few days ago, rated PG-13, directed by and produced by Steven Spielberg, who also did Jurassic Park, Indiana Jones movies, E.T., Close Encounters, uh, produced the Back to the Future movies, The Goonies, Empire of the Sun, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, also produced by Christy Makosko Krieger, who did Lincoln and Bridge of Spies, Dan Farah, who did Armored and The Crow remake that's coming out uh, next year, maybe. Uh, Donald DeLine, who did the Italian job, the 03 version, and Green Lantern, but we won't hold that against him. 
Writers for this one were Zach Penn, who did the screenplay. He did Last Action Hero and The Avengers. And Ernest Klein, who wrote the novel for this one. Uh, he also wrote the screenplay for Fanboys, the movie, and uh, is apparently helping work on the screenplay for the rumored Armada movie, and that's his second book that he wrote. Music for this one was done by Alan Silvestri, who did the Back to the Future movies, Flight of the Navigator, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, and The Avengers. Cinematography was done by Janusz Kaminski, who did Schindler's List and Saving Private Ryan. The budget was $175 million, and as of yesterday, when I looked up this number, it is at $181 million worldwide so far for the box office. So it's already made back its budget, and I'm sure it's going to make quite a bit more because, like I said, it's only been out less than a week. Starring Ty Sheridan as Parzival, or Wade Watts. He was in Mud and X-Men Apocalypse. Oddly enough, playing uh, Cyclops Scott Summers in X-Men, in the newer X-Men movies. And uh, he spends most of his time in this movie with a device uh, visor over his eyes. Olivia Cook played Artemis, or Samantha. She was in Me and Earl and the Dying Girl and the Bates Motel series. Ben Mendelsohn played Sorrento. He was in The Dark Knight Rises and Director Krennic in Rogue One, A Star Wars Story. Lena Waithe was H. Uh, I, I see that name and I always say it wrong. H, or Helen. Uh, she was in Master of None and was a writer for the TV series Bones. T.J. Miller was Irock. He was in Big Hero 6 and Deadpool. Simon Pegg was Ogden Morrow. He was in Shaun of the Dead and Star Trek. Mark Rylance was Anorak or Halliday. He was in Dunkirk and Bridge of Spies. Philip Zhao was Sho. He was uh, Ready Player One. is his only credit that I could find. Uh, Win Morasaki played Daito. He was in A Yell from Heaven. Hannah John Carmen played Finale Zandor. She was in Black Mirror and the upcoming Ant-Man and the Wasp. Ralph Innocent played Rick. He was in Guardians of the Galaxy and Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows. Susan Lynch played Alice. She was in From Hell and Waking Ned Divine. Critical reception for this one. So I'm going to read some of these off, but I'm definitely going to respond to these later. Um, it, it's it's really it's really mixed. I mean, overall, it's from Rotten Tomatoes. It has a 76% or 74% if you look at top critics. Um, but I think overall, it's gotten positive reviews. Most of the reviews I've included here are negative, uh, just because I do want to respond to those later on. But I did include one positive review at the end. So uh, Matthew Lacona from the San Diego Reader has said, Life in the Oasis is exciting and wondrous to behold through your avatar's oversized anime eyes, but it doesn't much but it doesn't mean much without some real world stakes, and that's where the film stumbles badly. It seems the evil boss wants to place ads in virtual reality, and that he runs a high tech and apparently legal debtors prison right under his executive offices. Pamela Hutchinson of Sight and Sound said, Ready Player One is a pageant of now-dated pop culture references, an elaborate feat of CGI and copyright clearance, with images from games and movies speeding past to the tune of Van Halen and AHA. I'm going to respond to that one real quick. And your problem is? <laughs> All right. Uh, Chris Evangelistia, uh, Evangelistia, I think that's how you say it, from Slash Film, uh, he says, It's official. Ready Player One is Steven Spielberg's worst film. I will definitely respond to that one here in just a moment, too. Uh, Jason Best from Movie Talk said, An adventure tale whose plot revolves around the pleasures of losing yourself in fantasy worlds, Ready Player One is a giddy rush of a movie that zips along on a tide of breathless action and boundless pop culture trivia. The audience rating uh, Rotten Tomatoes, audience score is an 80% from Cinema Score. It is given it an A-. Uh, and again, the difference, because there was some controversy over the uh, Rotten Tomatoes score for The Last Jedi, and, and that you know some people were trying to sabotage that. Um, I do tend to like Cinema Score a little bit better, just because that is 
a, a rea- reaction from people who have actually gone to see the movie. Like that is people being polled as they leave the theater. So you know that that is the reaction of people who went to go see the movie, have actually seen it, are real audience members. They give it an A minus. Uh, obviously, it's not won any awards yet because it's only been about five, maybe six days since it's been out. Uh, this film is set in 2045 with the world on the brink of chaos and collapse, but the people have found salvation in the Oasis, an expansive virtual reality universe created by the brilliant and eccentric James Halliday. When Halliday dies, he leaves his immense fortune to the first person to find a digital Easter egg he has hidden somewhere in the Oasis, sparking a contest that grips the entire world. When an unlikely young hero named Wade Watts decides to join the contest, he is hurled into a breakneck reality-bending treasure hunt through a fantastical universe of mystery, discovery, and danger. My name's Wade Watts. My dad picked that name because it sounded like a superhero's alter ego, like Peter Parker or Bruce Banner. But he died when I was a kid, my mom too. And I ended up here sitting here in my tiny corner of nowhere. There's nowhere left to go. Nowhere. Except the Oasis. A whole virtual universe. People come to the Oasis for all the things they can do. But they stay because of all the things they can be. Can you feel this? Um, yeah. It's the only place that feels like I mean anything. The Oasis was the brainchild of James Halliday. Hello. If you're watching this, I'm dead. I created a hidden object, an Easter egg. The first person to find the egg will inherit half a trillion dollars and total control of the oasis itself. Who is this Parzival? And how the hell is he winning? Find him. This isn't just a game. I'm talking about actual life and death stuff. The oasis, the world's most important economic resource. It's nothing less than a war for control of the future. Welcome to the rebellion, Wade. Like many of you, I only came here to escape. But I found something much bigger than just myself. Are you willing to fight? Help us save the Oasis. Oh, man. Every... Every time when when those trailers first came out, um, the first one had uh, what was it? I think it played a, a, a variation on the Willy Wonka theme. Um, it was a land of pure imagination and uh, Russia's Tom Sawyer, and and then this one with the uh, you know with the Van Halen and the the Back to the Future music and the, um, you know just even the just the sounds. Um, and just the, the images in those first trailers, as somebody who loves 80s stuff and, and loves trivia and, and, and that kind of stuff, I mean, this, it hooked me right away. Um, 
So let me start off by saying, I, I read the book several years ago. Um, actually, my sister uh, kind of shared it with me, and I think it was because she had read it. And uh, she might have read it when she was living in Austin. I know Ernest Klein is from Austin, Texas, and, and my sister was living there at the time. And originally, further back, my family's from Texas. So, um, you know, I think when she was living there a, a few years ago, she might have found this book. And she's like, you know what? You need to see this book. This book is basically your brain put down on paper because she knew how much I love 80s stuff and, and you know, all the stuff of our childhood, the you know Thundercats and Transformers and G.I. Joe and Star Wars and E.T. And, and just everything from the 80s. So, she got me turned on to that, so I, I got a copy of the book, and I read the book, and loved the book. Just loved the book. Now, I will, let me let me stop there for a second and say, there are definite issues with the book. Um, one of my biggest issues with the book, and I think uh, Jeff, you know, when he's when he's back from, uh, let's see when he's back from being a dad, he's not going to stop being a dad, um, but the next time he's on here, if he's able to send something or, or record something with us, I think, and Jeff, you can... Uh, correct me if I'm wrong here. I think you had kind of the same reaction when you read the book is that the book is, is very heavy on all these references, just like the movie is. It's, it's very heavy on all these references. And, and some of them, it gets to be a little overwhelming. Uh, like there were times where as I started reading the book, there were just paragraphs chock full of different references to something from the seventies or the eighties or pop culture that, that we grew up with. And, and it got to a kind of a point where after the first few, uh, I'd say first few chapters or so I was sitting there and I was going, Oh, okay. All right. Um, I, I got it. There's, there's references. Uh, yep. Yeah, you referenced that and, uh, yeah, we can compare it to that. And, and sure. That's like Luke Skywalker and Underoos. Yeah. We all remember Underoos. Um, and it kind of, it, it got a little bit to a point where I was like, okay, let's, we got the references. Um, maybe we can move on now. So with the book, that was kind of one of the only things that I was really like, whoa, that maybe we overdid that just a little bit. Um, that's where I think the movie actually did. I, I might actually enjoy the movie a little bit more than I did the book for that reason. Still enjoyed the book. And the book has things in it, obviously, that don't show up in the movie. You're never going to be able to fully adapt a book into one two or so hour movie, um, and fit everything into it. So there's definitely stuff in the book and, and, and obviously they had to make some changes in the adaptation for time and, and to make it a little bit more interesting to a general audience. Um, so definitely if you, if you feel like this is a movie that you enjoy, definitely go take a look at the book because the book does have enough of a difference that, that I think it's, uh, you, you know, you'll be, you'll be interested in it if, if you enjoyed this movie and, and if you like all the eighties and the pop culture trivia and all that stuff. Um, so I think one of the things that caused me to like this movie was the way in which the references were there, but if I wanted to ignore them, I could. Obviously, when you're reading a book, you can't ignore the words or else you've, you're not reading the book. So in this, there were always references off to the side of the screen, and, and I'm going to have to go back and watch this movie several times to be able to see all of them. Um, you know, in that part, maybe was a little overwhelming, was to try to, my brain was always on like, hyper mode. I was always trying to, oh, there's that. Look at that corner. Maybe there's something hidden here. Should I look for that character? Should I do this? I, I, where's, where do my eyes need to go here? Um, so it's it's definitely a movie that needs rewatching, especially if you're somebody who wants to look for all the different Easter eggs. Um 
I want to go back and kind of take a look at the responses from some of those critics and what they said about the movie uh, and, and ways in which they felt the movie was lacking. I'm going to start with the first one uh, from the San Diego Reader, the guy that said, Life in the Oasis is exciting and wondrous to behold through your avatar's oversized anime eyes, but it doesn't mean much without some real-world stakes. And that's where the film stumbles badly. Uh, it seems the evil boss wants to place ads in virtual reality and that he runs a high-tech and apparently legal debtor's prison right under his executive offices. Um, so he, and I, I've heard this before from several different places. Um, I've heard people say, look, there's no real, real world stakes here. It's a kid playing a video game. And, and why should we care about that? And some people have compared it with uh, Black Panther, like Black Panther, great movie, outstanding movie. There's real world stakes there. Like there's a kingdom is in danger. And I, well, my problem with that is there are real world stakes here. And when I, this is one of those cases where I saw some of these reviews and I, after I watched the movie, I, I tried not to look at any reviews before going to the movie this time. And, um, I read some of these reviews and I was like, did we watch the same movie? And I've, I've done that before too. I felt like, I don't know if we saw the same movie or not, because in the movie that I saw life pretty much sucks outside of the Oasis and the way life works. I mean, everybody practically lives in the Oasis. So it's not just, it, it, it's not quite the same as the internet where, you know, you have your device and you, and you jump on and, you know, you spend a little bit of time there and you text your friends and you play some games and you, um, you know, you interact in social media. It, social media has become the world in this movie. I mean, you still have people walking around in the real world doing stuff. Um, but for the most part, everybody seems to kind of live in the Oasis. So, I don't think it's a case of the bad guy wants to sell ads. I mean, yes, that's kind of what they show in the movie that he wants to monetize the space more and, and obviously, you know, sell some ads there. Um, I mean, I think part of it is you've got a, a bit of a message relating to like net neutrality type things. Um, you know, do we, do, do we want this corporation to be in charge of people's access to, uh, and I think that's, that's difficult to, look at it as um, virtual reality. I think this movie is trying to show us that the Oasis has become the world. Like it's, it's so encompassing that that is the world. And to say that, oh yeah, the bad guy just wants to sell ads in virtual reality. No, he wants to control the world. This Oasis is the world. Um, and now we don't see, you know, we, we, we see uh, primarily, uh, especially in the, um, in the book, or I'm sorry, in the movie, we only really see this from America. And I know that we get a sense, I think there's mentioned a couple of times that obviously the Oasis is a, a worldwide thing. Um, but we don't really get much of a sense that it, it, there's a whole lot going on outside of the world and much less outside of Columbus, Ohio. Um, so I think, I mean, that maybe is a spot where maybe the movie could have done more to show that this oasis is the world. This is where people live. This is where people interact. Uh, it's not just a game. It's not just social media. It's immersive. It's that, that that's where we are. That's our environment now um, in 2045. So I, I do have a problem with saying that there's not high or not high stakes in this movie that, I mean, we talk about people dying here. Like there's people dying in these debtors prisons and this corporation wants to take it over. Now, the other side of that too is who cares if there's high stakes or not? Um, you know, I look back to some of the movies like the Goonies or 
you know, a lot of these other 80s movies where in the instance you've, you've got a, a corporate bad guy and you've got the little person or the, the kid who's trying to go up against the adult. And I mean, that's Steven Spielberg's wheelhouse. That's, that's E.T. That's a lot of his other movies. Um, and sometimes it's a matter of they want to try to, you know, save their town or their house or their whatever from developers. That was a totally 80s thing to do uh, as part of your story. Is it worldwide high stakes like you see in something like Black Panther? No. Uh, is it Avengers in Infinity War? No. Um, but it's very much in that vein of the 80s movies where it was the little person trying to fight against the the corporate developer kind of idea. So I don't have a problem with it. I, I, if some other reviewer has a problem with it and, and that ruins the movie for them, then that's totally their opinion. I don't have an issue with it. I was totally fine with it. Um, I guess I don't need high worldwide stakes to enjoy a, a movie like this. So that's just me. Uh, let me, I'll go to my second one that I kind of already responded to where she said, ready player one is a pageant of now dated pop culture references an elaborate feat of CGI and copyright clearance with images from games and movies speeding past to the tune of Van Halen and aha. And my response as it was before is, and I, I don't see the problem there. Um, I will disagree with the part that says now dated pop culture references. I feel like we have had so much of a resurgence of eighties and nineties, um, pop culture that I don't think it's outdated anymore. I mean, my kids and granted, I've probably brainwashed them, but my kids, they know eighties and nineties stuff. Like it's, you know, they know Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles because there have been games and there have been toys. Um, they thought it was really cool. They saw something online the other day, or back uh, Christmas time, I think, when they were looking through some of the like toy catalogs and things like that. They 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 saw something. It was a Tamagotchi, and and I said, "Oh yeah, we had those when we were kids." You know, kids love Pokemon. Pokemon is a totally '90s thing. Um, you know, they've redone cartoons for. He-Man and there's the Transformers movies and, you know, we're, we're bringing back so many of these eighties and nineties things, um, that I don't think they're outdated. Like, I think that I think, is it a recycling of eighties and nineties pop culture? Yeah. Um, but I don't see them as outdated. I mean, I, I see it as, I think that a kid could go to this movie, particularly my kids, I know, could go to this movie and they would see several different things that they would look at and say, oh, yeah, that's from that thing. Or, oh, I remember that character. Oh, it's Godzilla or um, King Kong or, or the T-Rex from, from Jurassic Park. So I don't know that I see it as an outdated, outdated references. Now, if we want to talk about geek culture and the nostalgia factor of this movie, um, you know, I, I heard of some reviewers say that the nostalgia part of this movie is its weakness, that it's just sad. It's just sad nostalgia because, um, you know, and, and that makes this movie not worthwhile to go see. Like, it's just, you know, this movie is only made for fanboys who are stuck in, you know, something that they loved in childhood and they can't move beyond it. Um, I'm totally capable of moving beyond my childhood, but why do I need to? If there are things that I enjoyed in my childhood that I still enjoy now, I mean, I'm not acting like a child necessarily. I, I, I guess, I guess part of the issue I have is I don't know what's wrong with enjoying a movie that has a lot of our pop culture and, and our references to things from our childhood. I, I guess I don't know what's wrong with that. Um, 
you know, and, and they talk about, I've heard a couple of reviewers say that it's just, it's just sad. It's just sad that, you know, these are, this movie is made for the, the 40 year old white guy who's unmarried and lonely and living in his mother's basement or, or whatever, whatever. Um, no, I, I don't get that at all. And I, I really think that that also kind of glosses over part of the movie in that while the book I think is very much a celebration of eighties, seventies uh, and eighties and, and even a little bit of nineties pop culture. Um, I think that the movie in particular pushes up against that. I mean, I think you very clearly see Halliday as a very sad and withdrawn and kind of lonely person. Um, you know, he even says in the movie a couple times, I think I, I just don't, you know, I, I don't, I don't get people. Um, you know, that, that he didn't maybe really have a lot of friends and he didn't go outside much. And I think the movie pushes back on that. And the movie says that while this is all great, um, go outside more, you know, get off your games, uh, get off the internet and go do something like go, go into the real world and do that. And some reviewers I've heard have criticized the movie and said, oh, it's just a glorification of video games and geek culture and, and, you know, just to make people nerds who don't go anywhere and don't, you know, involve themselves in the real world. I felt like the movie had the total opposite message. Um, I mean, by the end, the, the, the very last, and I, I forget what it was, but the very last line of the movie is basically go out into the real world, like go do stuff. Like, yes, this is all cool, but go do something, you know, go enjoy life with real people, interact with real people. So I, I really don't understand Every time I've heard that from a reviewer, I was listening to a, a podcast the other day and uh, they said exactly that. They're like, this movie just glorifies it and just loves it all and, and there's nothing wrong with it. And I'm like, no, that is not the message of this movie at all. The message of this movie is, um, you know, we go through this this whole rigmarole of, of trying to get through these these games and the games are fun and the challenges are fun. But in the end, you got to remember that it's just a game and then turn off the game and go outside and talk to your friends and talk to your family and unplug for a while. Um, so I, a lot of the criticisms that I've heard so far of this movie, um, I mean, the movie definitely has some issues, but I, I just hear some of those criticisms and I keep thinking, I'm not sure you fully understood this movie if that was your problem with it. Um, if you did, that's totally fine. If somebody's listening to this and you're like, no, I agree with all those people and you're totally wrong, John, um, then I would love to hear from you because I'm, I'm not, I don't want to belittle anybody by saying that, no, you just didn't get it. You, you suck. You did, you didn't like ready player one. I don't care if you didn't like ready player one, that's totally fine. Um, but I just didn't agree with, I, I, I felt like those arguments weren't well supported. Um, when I've heard people give them. So if anybody has a well supported argument, um, for, you know, following those same reasons for, for what, uh, is at fault in this movie, then let me know. Uh, I definitely want to go to the one, uh, from slash film. The guy says it's official ready player one is Steven Spielberg's worst film. Okay. I definitely want to respond to that one and say, okay, then, um, first of all, you apparently never saw kingdom of the crystal skull. Second of all, just out of curiosity. I mean, I, I know most of Steven Spielberg's movies and I've seen most of them, I went to IMDb and I looked up Steven Spielberg's list of movies. If Ready Player One really and truly is his worst movie, and I don't think it is, I think Kingdom of the Crystal Skull is probably the worst movie, even if that's his worst movie, that's still saying a lot. 
because when I looked at the other list, I and and I think Nerdist uh, was it Nerdist that did this the other day. They put out a uh, March Madness bracket that was supposed to be getting people to vote on Steven Spielberg's greatest movie through a March Madness bracket, and I think I responded with something like, you know, damn you for making us do something like this. This is horrible. Um, if this is his worst movie, then okay, because I looked at the other part of his list and I was like, oh wow. How do you even how do you even start to rank some of these like the stuff that Steven Spielberg has made and I, and I mainly just looked at what he had directed in that list and I was like I, oh all right well even probably even I'll make it an analogy that may not work somebody like Michael Jordan even like Michael Jordan's worst game was still probably way better than a lot of other people's best games or even average games. So if this is his worst movie, then okay. That doesn't mean it's a bad movie. Because looking at his list, that that still says a lot about Ready Player One. Um, definitely not the worst movie ever made. I mean, I, I again, I was very entertained by it, and I, I really enjoyed it. Um, but yeah, I think it's a little harsh to call it his worst movie. Again, I don't think this person saw Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. However, if they did, and they think this one is worse then feel free. That is your opinion. More power to you. Um, I did want to talk a little bit about some of the story. Now, there are differences in this um, between the book and the movie. Obviously, you had to kind of cut some stuff for time and for interest. And um, Ernest Klein, I was talking to somebody here at, at work the other day who had seen the movie. And they're like, well, I read the book and I saw the movie. What did you think? And I said, well, you know, actually, I really liked the movie. He's like, really? I felt like the movie and the book were totally different. Well, yeah, I mean, they certainly had to change some things, but at the same time, Ernest Klein was also working on the screenplay with Zach Penn on this movie. So he had creative input as to what was going to get changed. Now, looking back on the book, and, and it's been a while since I've read the book, so if I get some of this wrong, you know, forgive me, but um, even just looking at the keys, like how you go about getting the keys in this, the copper key, the jade key, and the crystal key, the... Copper key, you had, uh, I believe in the book, well, what you also had in the book that was different was you didn't just get the keys, you also had to get to the gate, um, you know, that the key unlocked. And so you almost had twice as many challenges to, to get each of these and uh, to unlock them. And so you definitely had more stuff going on and, and more opportunities for references uh, and challenges that people had to do. Uh, the copper key, I believe, was... You had to go through um, what was it, the, the tomb of the tomb of horrors uh, from Dungeons and Dragons, and then when you got to that, you got to the I believe it was to the gate, and then you had to that was one of the things I thought was interesting in the book. You had to recite the entire movie of War Games, and I'm like whoa. All right, so there's, I mean, that's that's dedication because there's a few movies I can recite word for word, most of them being Star Wars. Um, maybe Superman, the original Superman, maybe Superman 2. Uh, but um, yeah, that's, uh, his, his challenge in the book is he has to recite perfectly every line for Matthew Broderick's character, I think, was it David in that movie? Um, Matthew Broderick's character in War Games. So you've got that and you could do that. You could show that in a movie, but it's not as exciting as if you said, oh, hey, first thing is a race that nobody can win. And then you get an opportunity to show off vehicles. 
you get an opportunity to show off the different cars, the different uh, vehicles that are in that race. And that was the first part that, you know, I just knew, oh man, my brain is going to be on overdrive this entire movie as I'm trying to, to figure this stuff out. So, but I think that's one of the things to keep in mind with this movie is that you had to make adjustments from the story. I mean, the book is, the book is great. I mean, the book is very much for, um, you know, I, I, I think when you write a book, you are, you have a very specific audience in mind. You know that there are a ridiculous number of books published every year. Um, there's so many options out there for people to read. And so you have a very, very specific audience. I think though, when you make a movie and you make a movie of this scale, you definitely want it to appeal to the broadest number of people. And you also want this to be something that can be shared internationally. I mean, we, we look at all these movies now that include different elements that they know will play well in places like China, in places across the world, uh, in those international markets. So I think that you definitely need to make some changes to the book here so that it's more interesting for a general audience. Now, when I was reading the book and they were talking about a lot of the Dungeons and Dragons stuff, I was never a D&D player. So, you know, those kind of things, I was like, oh, that's interesting. That's not a part, you know, I was never a part of that culture uh, as part of my childhood. So I was interested in it and I followed it in the book and I was like, okay, well, that's cool. Um, you know, much in the same way with with Stranger Things, you know, you've got a lot of those references in there as well. But, um, you know, that was not something that really spoke to me very much. Now, switch it to this race and automatically you're starting the movie off um, with a, a fast paced beginning. Like you're, you're right out of the gate. We are, um, you know, uh, pedal to the metal. And, uh, you, like I said, you've got plenty of opportunities to start showcasing the different vehicles and the different, uh, references that we're going to start making here. So I think that was a much better way to kind of start the movie off when you, when you gotta, when you gotta cut for time, um, you know, you, you can't run through an entire quote along with war games, um, and, and run through a, uh, you know, D and D campaign. So, um, Definitely, I, I think that was fine. You know, I didn't have a problem with it. Um, I know that with the Jade Key, and again, I'm, I'm kind of doing some of this from memory here. The Jade Key, I believe, was he had to play through Zork and collect the treasures in Zork. And um, then he had to find a Captain Crunch whistle uh, from a box of cereal and blow the whistle. And, and again, some of those different references might have been completely lost on a modern audience, uh, Zork would not have been lost on some of my former students. I actually had that, um, you know, I, I teach language arts and one year I had as part of an assignment towards the end of the year, I had the students, we were kind of looking at the ideas of technical writing and I had the students try to play through a little bit of Zork and they had to try to create a, a walkthrough. You know, they, they would watch videos on YouTube where people show how to walk through a level of a video game. And so I had them play the text-based game Zork and uh, we played that for, a, you know, maybe a day or two. And as they were going along, they had to kind of take notes and, and talk about how they would explain, um, you know, getting through some of these levels to somebody else and, and how they would write through a, an explanation of what Zork is and, and how do you beat this game. And, and I had some students that were drawing out their own maps, um, you know, just like kids did back in the 80s. And um, so some of my former students would have totally gotten the Zork thing. But uh, Zork was not something that I think a broader audience, um, you know, would have necessarily understood as well. And probably a, a little more interesting to switch that to The Shining. 
um, you know, obviously you, you have an opportunity as they're playing through the, uh, the environment of The Shining to look for clues there. Now, what I thought they might do is, is a little bit of, you know, incorporating more from The Shining movie. Really, that, that was one of the only parts where it, it, a little bit of a letdown. Um, because you're in The Shining, and, and in the book, you really had to know the movies. Uh, you had to know war games. You had to know, I think there was a part where you had to know through, uh, you had to know Monty Python and the Holy Grail, um, you know, and, and things like that. I kind of felt like when they got to the Shining section, you didn't really need to know a whole lot about The Shining. Um, I mean, enough to avoid certain parts of it and, and to know when danger is coming, but you didn't, you know, even somebody like H didn't necessarily, I mean, Granted, she almost got killed, but, um, you know, didn't know all that much about The Shining and, and wasn't a fan of scary movies anyway. But I thought that was a great segment like that. I thought was great. Even, even younger people that were in the audience, they still got, even if they didn't know what The Shining was, even if they'd never seen it before, they at least knew that this was an iconic movie. This is a famous movie, um, you know, and, and and they've seen some of these images before, uh, whether it's been played out on The Simpsons or, or somewhere else, they've seen it before. So even if they're not fans of The Shining or they're not well-versed in it, um, this wasn't something that would totally fly over their heads. Granted, if the audience member was very, very young, I think if my son was there, uh, he's 10, if he was there, he wouldn't know The Shining at all. Um, you know, he might recognize some other characters from, you know, if he's seen posters somewhere or if he's, see, if he's heard me talk about something. Um, but, uh, you know, he definitely wouldn't have gotten The Shining scene. And then you get to the very end and it's not even um, you know, the, the kind of dance hall where you have all the... the uh, floating dead zombies. Um, that's not even from the shining. So, um, you know, that's an entire kind of subplot going on there with the love story and, uh, for Halliday and, and the characters that are not part of, uh, the shining that you have to work through. So that was a little bit different from the book as well. The crystal key, um, see if I remember this one, right. I think it was from the rush album, 2112. And it is, uh, the clues are in the song, the temple of, uh, syrinx. And it replaced it with playing the Atari 2600, uh, the game adventure. You had to figure out which game it was. And, uh, then you had to play through it. Uh, well, they thought you had to play through it. Turns out it was the original Easter egg where you just have to wander around in this dark room, uh, you know, find the object and, and bring it back to the beginning. And, um, again, if you're going to cut something for time, if you're going to do something that's maybe a little bit more interesting, um, you know, some of the some of the stuff with like looking into song lyrics and I, that works well in a book, but I don't know if that would work super well in a movie. So I don't have a problem with the changes they made. I, as I said, I talked to a couple of other people who had read the book and they're like, no, it's, it's a, you know, it's a very loose adaptation. And, and I didn't like the movie cause it messed this part up and it, I was fine with it. I, I recognize that a movie needs to do different things than a book does, especially I think a book like this. Um, so I was fine. A few of the other things that were different between the book and the movie, um, originally Wade lives in Oklahoma City, and obviously in the movie he's in Columbus, Ohio the entire time. Eventually he does make it to Columbus um, later on in the book, but he starts off in Oklahoma City. Iraq, uh, the mercenary in the movie, was actually kind of a friend, I don't know if he was a friend, but he was a, a fellow player along with uh, Parsifal and H., who actually kind of sells them out to the IOI in exchange for, um, you know, some some additional secrets, uh, in the game. Um, 
In the book, uh, we see him go to school, and really in the movie, there's no school. But again, obviously, you got to cut some things for time. Um, Wade actually makes him changes physically, so we get a little bit of that message of, "Hey, look, you got to." You got to take care of yourself in the real world, not just in this virtual world. So we do see that Wade actually kind of uh, works out a little bit and, and kind of cleans himself up and, and uh, you know, is trying to, to make that attempt. Daito actually dies pretty early on in the book, um, whereas he lives through the entire movie. Um, and then, uh, I, most of the other changes that I had written down in my notes here were just the different changes that they made for the, um, you know, kind of the, the challenges, the gates and the keys and, and all that. Um, you also have less real world interaction in the book between, between Parzival and Artemis. Um, they really don't meet in the real world until the very end of the book. Um, whereas, you know, we, we got to have that love story going on. So they do meet, uh, pretty early on in the movie, uh, probably about halfway through, maybe a little bit less than halfway through. Now, one of the big things about this movie is the Easter eggs, like all the hidden stuff that's in here. And I tried to come up with a list of the stuff that I saw and I know that I forgot. I was, I wanted to enjoy the movie. So I did not take a notebook in with me. I just tried to do some of this off of memory and, and then I tried to look up a couple of things later on. So I, I have a, I have all my little post-it notes here of some of the different Easter eggs that you see in this movie. Um, and I also thought it was kind of fun that they released the movie on Easter weekend. So it's, it's a weekend all about Easter eggs. Um, but yeah, I mean, so many references in this movie and just so fun to see it when I was in the theater, uh, and the theater I was in was, was pretty packed. Um, it was, it was fun to hear, even if it was something that I wasn't interested in, it was fun to hear people from different parts of the theater. You know, I'm sitting there going, oh man, it's, it's Mechagodzilla. And you know, some, I, I'm not as well-versed and, and not necessarily a fan of like the Gundam stuff, but uh, I hear somebody when, when the Gundam character shows up, it gets dropped off by the Firefly, uh, Serenity ship. Um, you know, I can hear somebody in the back corner of the theater like Gundam. Yeah. So, I mean, you had people you know, cheering for their own, uh, fandom, their, their own geekdom that is showing up there on the screen. So it was kind of fun, you know, to do that. You're, you're in a theater with a group of people. And I think to go along with the movie, that's probably the best way to see this movie. Now, granted, I don't think some of my other family members would have enjoyed this movie because the visuals would have overwhelmed them. Um, particularly some of my older family members, but I do feel like for someone for whom this movie really resonates, you got to go see this in the theater. You got to see it with other people. You got to experience this movie with, with the reactions of other people around you. Um, and like I said, I think that's probably one of the messages of this, if this movie is interact with people, don't just spend your life on social media. Don't just lock yourself into video games. Um, you know, spend time with people. And so I think you, you got to see this in the theater because that's, that's really how it was meant to be seen. All right, so some of the Easter eggs that I tried to jot down uh, that I saw in this movie, and, and some were just so fast. So if I got any of these wrong, please feel free to let me know. Um, I'm going to start with even H's Garage, which was just a great scene. There was so much going on in H's Garage there. Um, I believe in one corner propped up against the wall, you had Pee Wee Herman's bike. Uh, from Pee-wee's Big Adventure. You had the Winnebago from Spaceballs. You had Ripley's Power Loader from Aliens. You had the Iron Giant, obviously, and that comes back to, to play a big part later in the movie. Um, you had the you had a Battlestar Galactica, uh, a Battlestar. Um, you had... Uh, you had a Colonial Viper. There was a Colonial Viper I saw in there. I believe there was a hoverboard. Um, Might have been in a different scene, but I feel like in H's... Um, might've been in the truck they were in, but in H's garage or, or somewhere with H there was a hoverboard. 
Uh, I believe there was a Save Ferris sign uh, somewhere in there, too. Uh, in the garage, there was the Ed 209 from Robocop, and there was Cameron's dad's Ferrari. There were a couple of other ships in there. I think one of the ones might have been the Pod uh, from 2001, um, when Dave goes out and Hal won't let him back in. Um, I think, but I, I can't remember. And there were some other ships there that I, you know, other ships or fighters from other movies that I didn't recognize just because I may not have seen those movies before, but, um, you know, definitely a ton of stuff in that scene in particular to try to process some of the other things that they had going on in the movie. And this was just from my list of things that I tried to jot down. Uh, you had battle toads. I remember battle toads being, a I think it was a super Nintendo game, uh, back in the early nineties. You have Freddy Krueger shows up in, in one of the early scenes when you first meet H. Um, I think Parsifal at one point is wearing a Thundercats belt, uh, you see RoboCop walk through a portal at some point. You see a bunch of Halo characters. Um, obviously, uh, Sorrento turns himself into Mecha Godzilla at the end. Um, you have the Gundam fighter that comes to fight Mecha Godzilla. You have the Iron Giant that fights Mecha Godzilla as well. Um, I love the Chucky Bomb <laughs> when they drop the Chucky Bomb, and you see you, know, you see the scene of the uh, the IOI uh, people kind of locked into their little pods in the real world. And, and when they die, it kind of turns from white to red. And when the Chucky bomb goes off, just it, it cuts back to, and you just see clusters of them start to turn red as Chucky just jumps from cluster to cluster of people just stabbing away. Um, and I think that was particularly funny just because we had just done child's play, uh, as part of the podcast. Uh, you have the Zemeckis cube, which is the Rubik's cube that causes everything to go back in time, 60 seconds, and, and loved uh, that homage to uh, to um, uh, Robert Zemeckis and, and the little uh, Back to the Future theme that played. Uh, you have the DeLorean, and one of the things that I thought I saw at the end battle scene, but I don't remember if it was on there at the beginning of the movie in the race, was it was the DeLorean from Back to the Future, but it also had the grill of um, Kit from Knight Rider, like the the, the red... Um, moving backward and, and forward on there. So I, I think they kind of mashed those two things up. And I know that was at the end of the movie, but I couldn't recall if I had seen it at the beginning or not. Um, you have a Connie does bike from Akira. You have the Holy hand grenade of Antioch uh, from Monty Python and the Holy grail. And I wish I, if I had been writing the movie and maybe it was in there, but it just got cut for time. I wish when they threw the Holy hand grenade that he would have been standing there with H. I think he was with H when he throws it. Um, might have been no because h now see i'm, I'm gonna forget i think h was in the iron giant at that point but if he was there with artemis well no because artemis was inside the castle anyway whoever he was with i can't remember it at this point um when he throws the holy hand grenade i wish i wish 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 wish, wish that to get the holy hand grenade to work you have to say one two five and then you know then throw it that I, I would have laughed out loud. I mean, I laughed out loud anyway when I saw that the Holy Hand Grenade was a weapon they were going to be using. Um, but if that had been the way you activate it, it would have been perfect. Um, at one point when he's trying to decide what to wear uh, to go meet up with Artemis at the dance, um, at the kind of dance club, he changes into Michael Jackson's Thriller outfit, the red leather one. Uh, I remember seeing Chun-Li from Street Fighter, and I think Blanca was in the dance club scene, if I remember right. Um I love that one scene where you have the the warrior that kind of, when when he gets, when Parzival wins and gets famous, uh, that one big warrior kind of pulls him into a corner, like pulls him into a wall. And then all of a sudden a, a chest burster comes out of his chest and it's a glove that Artemis is wearing to kind of mess with him. I thought that was great. I, I would actually love to have a chest burster glove right now. Um, 
I could find plenty of uses for it. Uh, the Mad Balls grenade. <laughs> Just the fact that I got to see a Mad Ball in a movie. I thought, oh man, I I remember having some of those. My mom absolutely hated them, but I remember having them. Um, some of the vehicles that you see in the race at the beginning, there was the Speed Racer car, the A-Team van, the 60s Batmobile. Obviously, H was driving the Bigfoot monster truck. Um, you had uh, Christine, the car, uh, in that early scene. You had the DeLorean with the kit grill. Um what else did you have? You had in the dance hall, the the dance club scene, they did the Saturday Night Fever dance. Um, you had a Joker and Harley Quinn showed up. Um, oh, man, what else? Um, you had, uh, my daughter would have loved that Hello Kitty was walking by in one of the scenes. Um, Halliday had a Star Trek-themed funeral, which I thought was great. At one point, Parsifal uses his Hadouken power um, to throw a fireball. Uh, you had the Serenity from Firefly. Um, here's one that I wish they had done differently. They had the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, but it was the new Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. And when I saw that, I was like, oh, really? I, that was one of the only times that a reference uh, took me out of the movie was I saw that and I was like, oh, why didn't you do the 90s Turtles? Like make them look more like their cartoon counterparts because, well, I don't have any nostalgia for these new Ninja Turtles. That doesn't mean anything to me. Um, so I, and again, maybe that's just me being selfish 80s, 90s kid. But, um, you know, that, I would have done that one differently too. If, if they could have done the, you know, the, the classic, the, the classic Ninja Turtles, that would have been great. Um, oh man. And the scene, I just, I, I would gush about every single one of these. So this, this podcast could go on for a couple hours while I do this. But, um, the other part that I just, I thought was outstanding and, and I saw it coming as soon as this happened in the movie, uh, when the iron giant is, uh, acting as the bridge to get them across into the castle. Um, and the Iron Giant ends up falling into the lava. As soon as that started to happen, I was like, oh man, this is going to be like Terminator 2. And holy crap, did they have the Iron Giant give a big thumbs up as his, as his hand sunk down into the lava. And I'm just sitting there going, yes, <laughs> thank you. Um, just, I mean, just little moments like that. I mean, little moments like that are what just made me sit there and go, this is absolutely a movie made for me and for my nerdiness and my love of geeky eighties things. Um, you know, this is awesome. And I, I hear some of the criticism of people saying, well, you know, this is just a movie for, you know, geeky, nerdy, 40 year old white guys. Um, yeah. Okay. I, I don't want to get into a whole like race thing or political thing or, you know, male privilege or male white privilege thing or anything like that. But I just was, I, I was so happy and, and, and I know that, well, you know, you got plenty of movies, you got all the superhero movies you got. Yes. But this was just so much fun. This was so much fun. And, and I hope that there were other people that could enjoy this. I have heard the criticism that this is, this is a, you know, you grew up in America in the eighties and you're white and you're male. And this is the target audience for this movie. Um, if that's the case, okay. I just went to the theater to go see a movie and I had fun. Um, hopefully other people were able to enjoy this. It seemed like there were plenty of other references to things that would have been, um, would have been of interest to, to other people as well. But I don't know for sure. I, I just know that I had fun 
watching this movie. So um, if you've listened to our podcast and if you are of the same mind we are when it comes to like 80s stuff and, and 80s pop culture, um, you know, I really think you would like this movie. If you haven't seen it yet and if you're on the fence about whether or not you're going to go see it, I really and truly do think that you would enjoy this movie. So um, I don't know that I really have any more to say about Ready Player One. I mean, it just is... It was fun. It was so much fun. And I definitely recommend seeing this one in the theater. If you're able to see it in the theater, go see this one in the theater. It needs to be seen in the theater. Um, I will definitely be buying the Blu-ray or the digital version when it comes out, but um, this needs to be seen in the theater. And most likely I will go see this in the theater again. So that being said, if you've got something that you want to share with us related to Ready Player One, uh, feel free to get in touch. Uh, if you want to get in touch over email, Facebook, Twitter, uh, as I said, we have the voicemail line. Uh, the number for that one is 872-356-6843. So 872-35-MOVIE. Uh, if you want to call that in, again, it goes straight through to voicemail, so you don't have to talk to another human being, although the lesson of the movie is you should go talk to other human beings. But uh, you won't be bothering anybody. Our phones will not be ringing if you send in a message there. So we'd love to hear from you uh, if you if you liked or even if you disliked Ready Player One. I, I don't care. You send in your feedback. We'd love to hear from you. Um, but anyway, that's I thought it was a great movie. Really, really enjoyed it. Had a ton of fun watching it. Go see it in the theater with other people. Get a huge tub of popcorn. Enjoy yourself. Um, it was a lot of fun. So that being said, we are going to jump on back into the eighties with our next episodes. Um, let me jump into my little notes here and see what we got coming up. Um, so next week, so next Wednesday, uh, we're going to be having the last temptation of Christ and dead ringers as our movies. And then April 18th, uh, we're going to jump all over the place. Um, I'm going to do an episode on Superman's 80th anniversary. April 18th is actually to the day, um, the date of Superman's 80th anniversary with the release of Action Comics number one. Um, so we're, I'm going to do a whole show on Superman, Superman's 80th anniversary. If you've got anything that you want to say about Superman, any feedback, anything else that you'd want to share about your favorite Superman stories, anything about the movies, anything at all about the character of Superman. Um, I'd love to hear from you again, voicemail line, Facebook, Twitter, email, however you want to get that to us. Uh, would love to hear from you. So feel free to, to share some of that with us. Um, cause I am a huge, huge, huge Superman fan and we'll be gushing about it for however long that podcast goes. Um, so that'll be April 18th will be that show. That's when it's released. Uh, usually we re record that maybe a couple of days or so before then. So if you do have feedback, uh, probably get it in by about the 15th of April so that we can uh, share that as part of our shows when we do our recording. And then finally, to finish out the month of April, uh, we will have Return of the Killer Tomatoes and Tape Heads on April 25th. That Wednesday will be that one. Uh, I will also be at C2E2 coming up this weekend. So in just a couple of days, um, re this is being released on... Uh, Wednesday, April 4th and C2E2 starts on Friday, April 6th. So if you are at C2E2 and you happen to see, uh, a nerdy guy, uh, let's see on Friday on Friday, I think I will be wearing, uh, got a free t-shirt from movietees.com uh, a while back. Um, it is a Cyberdyne systems t-shirt. So if you see a nerdy guy with a goatee and glasses wearing a Cyberdyne systems t-shirt on Friday, that's probably me. Uh, Saturday, I'm either going to be wearing a Jedi costume or my rocketeer costume that I've been working on. And then Sunday I will be with my whole family and, uh, my, my costume for then will definitely be the rocketeer. My wife is going to be 
playing Jenny. Um, we got her a 1940s dress and, and everything else. So, uh, we're going to be working on that. Uh, I think my son's going to be a clone trooper from star Wars. My daughter is going to be a unicorn. Um, not sure. My, my mother-in-law comes too. We bring the whole family to this thing. Uh, she may be a, a star Trek, um, character again. Um, we actually found her a hoodie, uh, about a year or two ago that looks exactly like a Star Trek uniform. Uh, it's got the red and the black and, uh, she has the little Star Trek, uh, pin that she can wear the little communicator pin. So, uh, so she, she will be there as well. But, um, so if you are there, if you're there at C2E2 and you happen to spot me, say hi. Um, and, uh, would love to talk to you for a little bit. I, I love to, to hang out in the artist alley. I got to go get me some more Rocketeer sketches. Uh, I have got some great sketches, uh, last year and uh, I'm trying to build up my, my Rocketeer sketch collection. So I'm going to be hanging out in artist alley a little bit, but I'll also be around. So if you see me and you recognize me, say hi. Um, otherwise, uh, if, if there's anything special in particular going on, a lot of times I like to pick up some stuff from there and then we use that as maybe a, a way to win some prizes here on the show. So I might have some giveaways coming up soon from, uh, from C2B2, but, uh, in the meantime, thank you so much for listening. Uh, hope you have an amazing, amazing week until we see you back here next time, next week for the last temptation of Christ and dead ringers. In the meantime, be excellent to each other and go watch some good movies. We'll see you next time.